0: The pussy is off the charts. <laughs> Tell me why I don't like money, wh- I know Victoria's
1: secret. Bamboo.
0: Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. This is the show that did it all for the glory of love. I'm your host, (laughs) Lindsay Tucker, and this is the really what actually we do is we do deep dives behind all your favorite songs. Maybe some of your not so favorite songs like today, but the point of this show is that we're going to tell you the story behind the song. Joining me today, as always, is Aviv Rubenstein. Hello.
2: I like the base you're doing like the baseball announcer thing, which I really like.
0: (laughs) Oh, do you we do We got
2: Second Base Mickey <laughs> Morandini. Um, how are you this week, Lindsay?
0: I'm doing just dandy.
2: Same. Bad. <laughs> just, just bad. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today, Lindsay?
0: Um, you told me we're doing a song called his glory. Something about his glory.
2: Down from his glory. Yes. So (laughs) this is a classic mystery episode. I love doing a mystery episode. Kind of telling the story and letting it all unfold. So let's jump right in. You ready to do it? Ready. Jack Arnold Beam. Jim Beam. Beam like Jim Beam, but not Jim Beam. Jack Beam.
0: You know, there was like a J.R. Beam bar where I went to college in Bristol. I did not. Is this a Rhode Island mystery?
2: It is not a Rhode Island. It's an Indianapolis mystery at first. Because he was born in Indianapolis in the mid-40s. And he wrote this about his early years. Quote, Music has always been the driving force in my life. The spark turned to flame. My grandfather Beam, who played piano with the Paul Whiteman band in the 20s, the torch was then passed on to my dad, Who loved to to play rock and boogie woogie songs on the piano? He was my inspiration to start taking piano lessons when I was about nine. The lessons only lasted about a year, but it was long enough to let me know that I wanted more music, just not the way I was being taught.
0: Which was Jesus music.
2: I don't actually know because at first this was like uh, boogie woogie, like rock and early rock and roll boogie woogie songs on the piano. And I think probably some classical because, like, everyone who learns piano learns classical first. But around the mid-50s when he was, like, 9 or 10 years old, Jack's parents joined a new church. And these meetings gave Jack what he called, quote, a first-class education in gospel music. So the gospel music is actually what got him more interested. Like, uh, the, the way he was being taught was not gospel, and he did not like that. So this is his quote. I was in love with the sounds of the Hammond B3 organ combined with those great gospel vocals, cranking out wonderful rhythmic songs. Also, I saturated my listening experience with artists such as Sam Cooke, Mahalia Jackson, and Ray Charles, and all the Rhythm and Blues records I could get my hands on. So Jack, who is white, was really into this Rhythm and Blues music that was sung mainly by black people at the time so jack sang in several vocal groups in high school and when he was 17 uh, right after he graduated his parents told him that they were going to go on a mission trip to south america with that church that they had joined and jack and like did jack want to come and he's like fucking no i'm 17 and i want my parents to leave for a year so Ooh. that's what happened he had some wild oats to sow.
0: don't we all
2: Right. This is from Rolling Stone, quote, left on his own, Beam went to nightclubs where he watched bands play. I got, I, Jack, got totally buried in it, he says about his interest in music at the time. That's all I wanted to do. Jack's parents weren't gone for super long. It seems like just about a year. And they returned in 1962, right before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And at this time, Jack and his buddy Jerry moved out to California to try to make it as musicians. So now they're living in L.A. Also, super randomly, the family's pastor also moved to California in like 1964.
0: The pastor followed them to California.
2: No. So the pastor, so the, the Jack, only Jack and Jerry went. And the pastor and Jack didn't super have like a relationship. But like just coincidentally, the pastor also moved to California a couple years later.
0: And this is somehow significant. to the It story. will be
2: significant later. Yes. Okay. Also in, also in 1964, Jack married his high school sweetheart. Rhonda. I don't actually, I don't know what her name is. I don't think it, it it's unimportant because in the next paragraph they get divorced. He killed her. Oh No, he did not kill her. So Jack toured as a musician for a while in a band called Stark Naked and the Car Thieves. Would you like to hear some Stark Naked and the Car Thieves?
0: Oh, would I?
2: Oh, would you? This is a song called... Can't stop thinking about the good times. Good times is all one word, because of course it is, by Stark Naked and the Car Thieves. Like it? I do like it. Of all the songs we're going to talk about today, this is my favorite.
0: This is your favorite.
2: This is like the one that it's I. It's all downhill from like. here. In terms of, well, basically, yes, everything about the story is about to <laughs> turn really, really bad. So it's like a cool kind of early psychedelic hippie music. Yep. But being a touring musician proved hard on Jack and his wife's relationship. And their marriage ended in divorce pretty soon, like in 1968, 1969.
0: Something tells me Rhonda dodged a bullet.
2: Uh, she certainly did. <laughs> so it's 1969. Jack doesn't really know what to do. He decides he wants to go back to school to study music, and he calls his folks. He tells his folks. Hey, I want to go to music college because, like, I don't like playing, but I like. I want to be a producer. That's his his thing. Is he wants to produce music? I'm playing.
0: surprised that was even a thing back then.
2: Yeah. So in the late '60s, this is like when we'll talk a little bit about like the studio setup in a minute. But this is like when multi track recording is really starting to take off. So like, music producers are, you know, Phil Spector is doing it, Brian Wilson is doing it, and now we have like the second. Generation of people who are like, "Oh my god, I can like be a music producer." So his parents are like, "Oh hey, remember our church? Our church will pay for you to go to music school. Will they? Yes." What? So the Jack catch. thinks just <laughs> that Jack doesn't th- see any catch. Jack <laughs> Jack thinks that this is a great idea because his, his his mom was like, "Hey, our church, it's great. It does a lot of philanthropy. It'll pay for you to go to music school." Okay. So So he quits his band and he moves to Ukiah, California to go to music school and to also go to this church. The catch is like, you have to attend services or whatever.
0: Where's Ukiah?
2: It's like in the north. It's in like uh, above San Francisco. Okay. When he gets there, he sees a bunch of like clean cut dudes and he's a self-described dope smoking hippie. And so he thinks he may have. He walks in. He's like, I made a huge mistake. He's got long hair. He doesn't care about religion at all. But the pastor asks him to work with this woman named Loretta Cordell, who was the church bookkeeper who was in charge of the choir. He's like, the choir stinks. You want to be a music producer. Work with Loretta to improve the choir.
0: Get back, Loretta.
2: Get back, Loretta. So uh, this is back to Jack's quote. Jack's like writing. It took a few months and a lot of afternoon and late night rehearsals, but we started to sound better and better. As we were practicing, I could see a sense of pride building in all the members of the choir and band. We couldn't wait to perform so we could show off each new song that we'd worked on together. It wasn't long until the church started rocking. The audiences loved us. I'm not sure exactly how long it took or when it happened, but the choir and band started to realize we were getting really good.
0: What's his pastor's name?
2: You'll find out. One uh, of the other church members described Jack as kind of a heroic figure, this badass rock star doing all of the great things that, quote, I wished I could do. Right? So he was like the cool, you know, you know, like the, like the youth, youth pastor vibe where he's like, I've been to a rock concert or two in my day. Like and everyone I've thought. I've
0: seen movies, but no, I don't know any youth pastors like that.
2: <laughs> That's a youth pastor vibe. But yeah, yeah, this this was this was Jack's thing. He was like the cool guy. Another church member said, quote, we were there at rehearsals for almost four or five hours. And he had a really great way of teaching us the songs. And he would go through each part and kind of hum or strum until you got it. And then we put it all together. And during the sermons, the pastor would stop to have people sing and perform whether he needed a break or well he f- he felt like people wanted to stand up and sing, he would have the choir and band participate again, right? So he he was, the pastor was like using the band and choir as part of the sermons. The music performed at the services gen- generally consisted of hymns, although they also included some contemporary pop material. Okay. So, but with the the pop material that they uh, included, had the lyrics revised to reflect the church's ideals and messages.
0: Of course it did.
2: Of course it did. So this is like, um, I want to hold your, like the Beatles, I want to hold your hand, but like, I want to hold Jesus's hand. Right. That's an example that was not actually used in this church, but I'm just giving you, I don't want to give anything away.
0: His, capital H.
2: Yeah, exactly. I want to hold his hand. Uh, so Jack found his calling, and maybe he wasn't super into the religious stuff, but he was great at working with the choir, and it was having really positive results. After a couple years of performing, the group started talking about cutting an album. This is not completely out of the ordinary. There are plenty of gospel albums, and the pastor thought it would be a good idea to help get the word out about the church, and the record sales could go back into the church is like you know whatever win 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 right the whatever the, the the records the money from the record sales could go back into the church to improve the church to help get the word out
0: improve the
2: church uh huh why so you seem uh you seem mistrustful of what's going on the why church. is that
0: <laughs> uh just cuz i have eyes ears and a brain in the modern day era uh
2: huh so I Listen, I have researched this entire story. You can trust this church. Really? Believe me. Okay. Yeah, Nothing totally bad not. is going to happen with this church. <laughs> Great. So Jack used some of the connections that he still had from Stark, Na- Stark Naked and the Car Thieves, and he got into a studio in L.A. Uh, called Hollywood Productions, and it had a 16-track recording console, which at the time was state-of-the-art. This was the studio that produced Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, Steely Dan's Asia, and Pink Floyd's The Wall. So this is like a legit studio Yeah. for this like ranky dink church, church choir and band. <laughs> uh, this is Jack again. We did have a blast. I can't remember exactly how many sessions we spent working on and recording all the vocal parts, but we finally got them all together. And before they did, this is the choir vocal parts. And before they did all the final vocals, they had the junior choir night, so like the kids' choir. So the head of the kids' choir was this dude named Don Beck, and he had them all polished up and ready to go. This is Jack's quote. I was thinking it was going to be a real fiasco with all the kids in the studio. I had already envisioned them running around, tripping over microphone cords, dropping their headphones, and knocking over mic stands. But oh, ye of little faith, to my total amazement, they marched in like little ladies and gentlemen, put on their headphones, and they were ready for business. They were all watching Don, like trained circus seals, ready to follow his every command. And it wasn't long before they had Welcome recorded completely perfectly, and we sent them home to bed. Welcome is the first song that we're going to listen to today. So, or the second song that we're going to listen to today.
0: It's just kids singing.
2: It's just kids singing. So this is this is the kids track.
1: It's
0: like the soundtrack to Annie.
2: Yeah, it is very it is very Annie ash, yes, ash, ash 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 But it's also like ten years before the Annie movie comes out. Oh, is it? Yes, it's like nineteen seventy-two. So let's play a quick round of does it slap?
0: In a creepy way, it does kind of slap.
2: Why is it creepy?
0: A bunch of kids singing in unison. About, w-
2: about welcome, We're glad, I'm glad you're with us.
0: Like in hell.
2: Okay. So, by the way, Don had an adopted son named Danny.
1: What? And I don't
2: think I don't think Danny was old enough to sing on this track yet. But I ve- I believe he eventually was in the kids choir.
0: I don't like the double D's father and son Donald D- and Don Danny. and Danny.
2: Now me neither. Okay, so all the instruments are recorded, the choir's recorded, but they still need the lead singers. And the pastor wanted to sing on a track, too, which would be, like, cool, right?
0: would it? Well,
2: there was some tense moments for the engineers at the producer's workshop. Oh, it wasn't the Hollywood workshop. It was the producer's workshop. I apologize. There were some tense moments for the engineers at the producer's workshop. The pastor showed up to sing his song with bodyguards, which kind of freaked people out. So this is Jack's quote. Everyone in the recording studio that worked there looked at this guy and went, whoa, what's going on with this? He had sunglasses on. It was 12 at night. Loretta Cordell played live with him on the organ while he sang the song. And it was just str- it was a strange thing for the people that worked there. So here's his song, which is our song of the week. And it is called Down From His Glory.
0: The song of the week is the pastor song?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like a Billy Joel song though. Came. Yes, Jesus was his name. Born in a manger. To his own astray.
0: So the pastor just like never sang with the choir, and then he just
1: like rips this out.
2: Yes. He does. <laughs> I mean, why did you go to an Italian, man? Is it because the song is just "O Solo Mio?
0: And this is Loretta? On the keys? Yeah, on on the keys, yeah. Just wow,
2: just wow. Okay, so let's dissect the song for a minute. It's "O Sole Mio," correct? And also, um, it's "Now or Never," right? And it's "Now or Never." The Elvis song is an interpolation of "O Sole Mio," and they like. I
0: also think it's Billy Joel's "Leningrad." Sure, you
2: know. Do you know whatever. that one? Nope. Well,
0: you're gonna have to hear it.
2: I it. Are you sure
0: it wasn't Billy Joel.
2: Well. Still a little early for Billy Joel, I think.
1: <laughs> was born in the spring of I'm not,
2: I'm not I'm not hearing it. You're just you just you just wanted to torture me with having to listen to Billy Joel. Maybe. Well, it's about to get a lot worse for you. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna do a fucking
2: Leningrad episode now. Great! I, I love communism. Yeah, no, we're we're done here. We're done. So let's let's take a look. Uh, let's take a a, a a read through of the lyrics to Down from His Glory.
0: Do we have to?
2: Yeah, just just to really hammer home, why don't you take it? It's not that many. There aren't that many lyrics.
0: Oh, I'll just take it away. Take it away. Down from, capital H, his glory, ever living story. Your God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own a stranger. Billy Joel song is a stranger too.
2: There is a, a strange Billy Joel song, yeah. <laughs> Surprise, it is Billy Joel.
0: <laughs> a man of sorrow, tears and agony. Oh, how you should adore him. How you should love him. He's your breath, your sunshine, your capital A all in all. The great creator became your savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in him.
2: So, of course, this pastor's name was Jim Jones, and the church we're talking about is the People's Temple. The People's Temple. Murder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're back to famous monsters, baby. Woohoo! So, what do you know about Jim Jones?
0: Um, I know that he was a crazy cult leader and he had like, like, like a thousand of his members that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, pretty right on, actually, within the margin of error. So this is, uh, th- this is, this is back to Jack's <laughs> quote. Jim sang the song as only he could, changing a few crucial lyrics to make sure everyone knew that he was God. And then he marched out of the studio with his uniformed followers right behind him like nothing ever happened. The album that the People's Temple created is called He Is Able. It is a gospel pop, gospel pop funk album and it came out in 1973. It sold thousands of copies.
0: Before the, the murder suey.
2: Before the murder suey. The sleeve the sleeve features black and white photos of Jim Jones and his followers and an inscription on the back cover that reads our choir consists of people from all walks of life. We are dedicated to one common cause: making the humanistic teachings of Jesus Christ part of our daily lives. Our inspiration is a lifestyle demonstrated by our pastor, James W. Jones. W. Uh, Warren. <laughs> I was considering referring to him as Warren until this point in the episode. So this what is do from you rolling-
0: want, Warren.
2: Stop calling Same you Warren. Warren. My name's not fucking Same Warren. name
0: is Warren. I thought
2: uh, so this Warren. is from Rolling Stone, a Rolling Stone, like, review of this album. Quote, okay. it's a 12-song wait, wait, collection. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. Hold on. You're just going to slide this in? Rolling Stone reviewed it?
2: Sure did. Why? So, sources wait, for this why? episode. <laughs> so, so San Diego State University did, like, a bizarre, huge, sprawling uh, thing called the reappraisal of Jim Jones in Jonestown, where, like, a lot of the quotes from the survivors are coming from the, the, the quotes from Jack are coming from. And, uh, it seems, you know, I'm not going to say that, that has, it has like a rosier view of Jim Jones than, uh, it should have, but it is a reappraisal of something. And, uh, and, a, 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 another significant portion of this comes from a, a Rolling Stone article about the music of, the People's Temple.
0: So they reviewed it later.
2: Yes, they reviewed. They they talked about. It's not like a review with like a score, but they are uh they are appraising the record. They are they are talking about its quality after significantly. Okay, okay. After.
0: that's why I'm saying like why like what oh, do you oh, mean? The Rolling Stone was just like, hey, to... this little album that could.
2: It's like next to Crocodile Rock. <laughs> No, no, no. It was significantly after.
0: Okay, okay. okay.
2: So Rolling Stone writes, It's a 12-song collection, a mix of old spirituals, gospel-inspired originals, and a couple of late 60s top 40 hits, all performed by a full choir and an eight-piece blue-eyed soul outfit with a hot brass section. (laughs) In hindsight, it's impossible to hear any obvious clues in the lyrics that would foreshadow the deaths of nearly all of the record's participants. Quote, you don't hear a group of religious fanatics whose zealotry will culminate in the Jonestown Massacre. You don't hear a cult at all. Just a great gospel rock band and a choir who sounds like they're having a hell of a time. Oh, my God. Rolling Stone.
0: People are just dying to get in.
2: People are not. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so Bean picked songs that were not only the strongest in the repertoire, of the choir, but also had commercial appeal like Walk a Mile in My Shoes, which is a Joe South song that was covered by Elvis, quote, quote, beam, I was looking at the message aside from the variety musically. The reason why something like Walk a Mile in My Shoes was chosen was because it was popular. Young people could identify more with it and also the message of the song. One of the choir members later said, I felt honored to be part of it. There was such a sense of camaraderie and that we were really doing something that was going to benefit father.
1: Father? Because they
2: called Jim father. Jim Jones was born in 1931 in Crete, Indiana. Some people say Lynn, Indiana. Crete and Lynn are 4.8 miles away. There's one road that goes from one to the other. Who gives a shit, you guys?
0: Walk a mile in his shoes
2: and you'll... Walk, mi- walk 4.8 miles <laughs> oh. in my shoes. Uh, during the Depression. This is from St- San Diego State University from that reappraisal of Jim Jones. Jonestown. As a child, he, quote, looked down on the behavior of other boys his age as they did not show much of an interest in their faith. On one occasion, Jim was so upset with one of his friends for going home rather than going out and witnessing, like going out and preaching, that he grabbed his father's gun and shot at the boy. This is from True TV from uh, an essay that they, uh, that's called The Man They Called Father. At an early age, he happened upon a Pentecostal congregation known as the Gospel Tabernacle. Made up of mainly people who had moved to the area from Kentucky and Tennessee, the church and its members dwelt on the fringes of the community and were known as, quote, holy rollers and tongues people by the more conservative members of the community of Crete. They did all this, like, faith-healing stuff, speaking in tongues, snake charming, all this wackadoo shit. Jim didn't enjoy participating in sports because he detested losing and he hated being left out. So, it, as he was, like, growing up in early high school, he coached teams of younger children instead. And he was disturbed by the treatment of African Americans who were in attendance at baseball games uh, that he went to like Richmond, Indiana, and other places around like the area, and the uh, the event the events at the baseball game br- that uh, brought like racism to Jim's attention. Jim fucking hated racism, but his father belonged to the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan. What? <laughs> so the Klan in Indiana gained a ton of support during the Great Depression because clearly in in Times of economic upheaval, there's like a a slide to fascism and and a uh, blame everyone else besides
0: the white man.
2: Exactly, the the rich. Well, you know, because they were poor too, so like they couldn't blame themselves. Um, And at one point, Jim and his father had a disagreement about race, and Jim's dad forbade one of Jim's black friends from entering the house, and this was enough. For Jim to stop talking to his father for, quote, many, many years. Jim's involvement in organizing baseball leagues ended when he murdered a dog in front of players by dropping it out of a window.
0: He was forced out of a baseball league for dropping a dog out a window?
2: He was was organizing the baseball league, but yes.
0: So, people saw him murdering a dog?
2: Yeah, he did it in front of the players.
0: On purpose?
2: I think As so. As like
0: yes. a You better play better or else you're gonna be this dead dog?
2: He he callously murdered a dog in front of players by dropping Whose it. Whose dog of was head. it? <laughs> I have no inf- more info about this dog. <laughs> this dog didn't release an album, I don't know.
0: Poor baby.
2: I know. This is from The Man They Call Father. By his early teens, Jim was no longer interested in the normal activities of the other boys. He was much more interested in the emotional and religious fervor he found at the Gospel Tabernacle Church. There he learned about spiritual healing, and he was soon receiving praise for his preaching. In 1945, Jim's parents split, and Jim became interested, fascinated, in the lives of powerful and influential men taking a special interest in Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Gandhi, and Karl Marx.
0: So predictable.
2: It's super interesting. It is It is very predictable. That's why I included the animal murder, because it fits the profile. But also, the sources are really interesting because each source, depending on how they feel about Jim, leaves stuff out. So, like, the, the article that's like, he was a monster, only mentions Hitler and Stalin. And the articles that are like, um, you know, even maybe he wasn't that bad, except for the whole murder thing, um, was like, oh, he studied Gandhi and Karl Marx. And the reality is it was all four. It was everybody. Jim was in high school during World War II, so his, fascina- his fascination with Hitler isn't entirely academic.
0: Okay, there. He
2: developed an intense interest in the Nazi party. He was fascinated by their pomp and their cohesion and Hitler's total power over his subjects.
0: Is it a little bit uh, contradictory that he was obsessed with Hitler, but anti-racism?
2: There are a ton of contradictions in Jim's story. I don't really know. uh, I don't really know why. The members of his neighborhood found it disconcerting about how much Jim talked about how much he loved Nazi Germany. Hmm. And like in the schoolyard, in, in like the playground or whatever, Jim acted as dictator over the other kids, ordering them to goose step together and beating those who disobeyed. One childhood friend recalled Jim shouting, Heil Hitler! And giving the Nazi salute to German prisoners of war who were traveling through their town on the way to a detention facility.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> also, you said he was in elementary school?
2: He was in high school when his parents split. and His parents split in 45. He was, he was 14-ish. And we entered the war in 42.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So he was like 10 to 15 when the, when the war was on. Okay. Oh, Commenting on his childhood, Jim stated, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. In those days a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions there was some kind of school performance and everyone's parent was there but mine i'm standing there alone always was alone okay tell me tell me your thoughts it seems like you have feelings about this
0: i mean they're just kind of like boo fucking who
2: I kind of agree, right? Like, there are plenty of people who have absent parents who don't murder nearly a thousand people.
0: Or docs.
2: Or docs. So in 1947, at the age of 16, Jim was preaching on street corners in both black and white neighborhoods in Indiana, sharing the wisdom and knowledge that he believed he possessed and was ob- obligated to share with others. He believed in the brotherhood of man, regardless of social standing or race. His sympathies lay with the poor and the downtrodden.
0: This doesn't make sense with the Hitler thing.
2: Yeah. So also being fascinated with Hitler and and playing as Hitler, I don't know. It's weird because he believes in, in socialism and he talks about socialism a fucking lot, except for him. He's above everyone and he's the, the, the one that's managing the rest of the people's equality. It's super, super interesting. How he like twists it all together. Okay. So Jim graduated from high school and soon after he married a woman named Marceline Baldwin, who was a nursing student at a hospital where he worked part time.
0: What was he doing at the hospital? Murdering babies?
2: (laughs) No, he was just I think he was just like sweeping up or whatever. It was the it was the f- the forties, so I don't know if they even had fucking germ theory or soap back yeah, then. He they probably were just like, did
0: murder a ton of fucking babies. We just don't know about it. He
2: had the he had the fucking leeches. So Jim was insecure and domineering, and his greatest fear was being abandoned by the ones that he cared about. So he was really jealous of any attention Marceline gave to anyone else. Jim's constant emotional explosions and tirades were extremely difficult for Marceline, but Marceline was a Methodist, and so she believed that marriage was a lifetime commitment, so she stuck it out with Jim.
0: Until?
2: Well, until the end.
0: Okay. Was she one of the...
2: She was one of the... So... Jim began to question his faith. He found it really difficult to reconcile his belief in a loving and merciful God with the reality of suffering and poverty that he saw around him. So he started saying that there was no God. And he expected Marceline to fall in line and to believe whatever he believed. And when she didn't, when she continued to go to church and pray, he threatened suicide. He was like, if you if you keep praying, I'm going to kill myself.
0: Oh, yeah. Just like manipulative emotional abuse, totally normal and chill.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting that like the, the serial killer profile, which uh, was not developed yet is like obsession with absent parents, specifically mothers, torturing animals, wetting the bed and one that they, they didn't want to put in there because uh, all the cops would be considered serial killers, but domestic abuse um, is like, he's got them all right. It ticks all the fucking boxes. But in 1952, Jim was brought back to religion by the Methodists who displayed a social conscious in line with Jim's own beliefs. And uh, the church, like, talked about giving equal rights to minorities and worked toward putting an end to poverty. But they did not go for, like, welfare or any social safety net. And Jim wasn't into that. Like, like they didn't go far enough for Jim. Jim was basically like a lefty socialist. Okay. Or so he said. Right? Sure. So Jim announces to Marceline and to her family that he's going to be a Methodist minister. And he believed that church was, was ready to put, quote, put real socialism into practice.
0: The church? His church?
2: At the church. like Like the Methodist church. They had given him a little bit of hope talking about ending poverty and racial equality. And so he's like, fuck yeah, I'm going to be a Methodist minister. We can do this together.
0: Me and Marceline.
2: Me and Marceline in the Methodist church down (laughs) by the schoolyard. Okay. Jim would repeatedly tell Marceline that Mao Zedong was his hero. (laughs) He's all over the fucking place, man. I don't know what to tell you.
0: I'm so confused about this guy. He's like, everything I read, I say out loud.
2: Yeah, basically, yes. (laughs) In the same year, while continuing his college studies, Jim accepted a position as student pastor at Somerset Methodist Church, which was a uh, less affluent but mostly white neighborhood in southern Indianapolis. Okay. And, And secretly, Jim visited a number of black churches in the area and invited those he met there to his own services and into his home.
0: Cult is beginning.
2: Well, as of right now, he's just believing in racial equality.
0: No, he's having people, like, stay at his home and having, like, a weird kumbaya circle where he hypnotizes
2: them. Hmm. Why would you think that? <laughs> in 1954, Jones was dismissed from his position in the Methodist church, ostensibly for stealing church funds, though later he claimed that he left the church because his leader, the, the leaders forbade him from integrating blacks into his congregation.
0: Okay. I'm Jim listening. would have a
2: history of doing both. Mm. also around this time jones visited a pentecostal latter rain convention in columbus indiana latter rain is like a really fringy version of pentecostalism that i could there's like a lot of uh different sects of christianity that i that i was dealing with that i i'm not gonna i don't give a shit they're all All right but i'm
0: glad you said that because i was about to ask you like why do you think I know what Latter Rain is? But no, no, I,
2: I, didn't. I, I was like three pages into explaining what Latter Rain is. I'm like, this doesn't fucking matter. Okay. But there, a woman prophesies that Jones himself was a prophet with a great ministry. So he sees this woman. This woman's like, I'm a prophet. You're also a prophet.
0: So she's like, I'm Miss Cleo and yes. you're going to do great things.
2: You're going to be a prophet with a great minister. Okay. This also coincides with a story about how Jim tried to adopt Marceline's 12-year-old cousin, a boy. And this is a weird sidetrack, but Jim told the boy that his mother was unfit and didn't love him. And so he should come to live with Jim and Marceline. And the boy was like, fuck you, and refused to speak to Jim basically ever again whenever Jim visited.
0: How old was the child?
2: Twelve. Twelve.
0: Okay, that is so fucking weird.
2: So weird. Good on uh, you, kid. Yeah, (laughs) dodged a bullet there, my guy. So within a couple years, Jim was successfully preaching at Pentecostal meetings and at other churches, and he drew large crowds by doing faith healing and performing miracles.
0: What were the miracles?
2: Magic tricks.
0: Let me eat this fire?
2: Kind of. Classic tent revival bullshit that, like, is fake. So by 1956, he moves his congregation to a larger premises and begins calling his activities a movement, and he refers to his church as the People's Temple. Uh, his, his emotional style and preaching of integration and equality were unusual uh, in a white preacher, especially in the mid-'50s, and the Joneses' congregation did not provide the strong financial backing needed to increase his influence, right? So he asks his church for donations, but his church is mainly made up of poor people. And so he does he isn't making a ton of money in his church. Okay. This is around the time where Jim meets the beams. Okay. So the congregation is small. Despite its lack of numbers, Jones's church established a soup kitchen and advocated giving shelter to needy people and the adoption of children. It's at this time that Jones and Marceline adopted a young girl, Agnes, who was part Native American.
0: How did, how? They who just gave them a kid?
2: One. I don't know, because he's a preacher. He's like, hasn't done anything criminal. He's doing fine. There are a couple of nice white people. Agnes is like half white, half Native American. They're like, this is great. And as Jim was making a name for himself, he would sometimes co-preach with this dude, William Branham, Branham, who was a healing evangelist and a Pentecostal leader. So his whole William Branham's thing was just healing people, laying hands on people, healing the sick. Your heart condition is gone. Your, you can walk again. All this shit. Right. That was his thing. And he was like a mentalist.
0: Oh, a mentalist.
2: So he was known to tell his attendees their name and addresses and why they came for prayer before pronouncing them healed.
0: Oh he he was psychic.
2: Yeah yeah, he was like he was like cold reading people and and there's uh there's this dude Peter Popoff who was a uh, a huge um like mega church leader in the eighties who would do the same thing, and he just like had his wife on a radio like spy on people and and listen to their names and like feed them into his ear, sure, so you know it's all just a regular it's all just psychic a fraud. shit, yeah, yeah, exactly, but Jim was intrigued by William and he began performing the same tricks, and then they did it as like a duo, and they were very successful. On their first joint campaign, so they would go on like tour, right? They would like, they they would like go on preaching tours. And on their first tour, they had an audience of 11,000 people.
0: 11,000 people in what state and what year?
2: The year is 1958.
0: All right. So so they're still like traveling by word of mouth. It's 1958. That's still a very, depending on what city it is, and it's still very significant
2: numbers. It's definitely like in Indiana somewhere. It's like not a big city. Okay. So at this convention in front of 11,000 people, Branham issued a prophetic endorsement of Jones and his ministry saying that God is using this convention to send forth a new great ministry headed by Jim Jones. So he gets like another prophecy thing in front of the, this 11,000 people. Many attendees believe that Jim's performance indicated that he possessed a supernatural gift, and coupled with William's endorsement, it led to rapid growth of the People's Temple. Jim was particularly effective at recruitment among African-American attendees at these conventions, and according to a newspaper report, regular attendance at the People's Temple swelled to a 1,000 thanks to the publicity that William provided to Jim and the People's Temple.
0: Okay. And how old is he? Do we know?
2: He, it's 1958, so he's 27. Okay. So Jim's off and running, and Pentecostalism, like Methodists before him, couldn't hold him back, and he basically starts his own sect of Christianity, because none of the others quite fit what he believed, and he played with a lot of them. He like, Wait, went what were so his,
0: home. like, branches?
2: He, so, he was... He was mostly in Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism, and Methodist.
0: I'm just wondering, like, what was his like hill that he was dying on? Like King James. Oh, oh, didn't oh, he like rewrite he, the Bible so he could get
2: divorced? So socialism, right? Okay. He has uh, Jim has some interesting things to say about King James, actually. Okay. Um, but but yeah, Jim just believed in like equality, uh, wealth redistribution, all this socialist stuff. Okay. Um, so in 1960. Indianapolis mayor appointed Jim director of local human rights. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he couldn't see into the future. <laughs> but the mayor is like, keep a low profile about the whole fucking human rights thing. <laughs> keep, a, keep a low profile in general. Don't go on TV. Don't go on the radio. Just, like, do your job.
0: What is your and
2: job? To, to like, uh, I think, like, soup kitchens and stuff. Like, like helping impoverished uh people of color on the ground level as opposed to systemic governmental change okay so jones ignored that and he used the he used the position to uh to leverage like radio spots where he would just talk about the people's temple
0: (laughs) fantastic
2: and the mayor and other commissioners asked him to chill out on the public appearance but he refused And he was wildly cheered at a meeting of the NAACP and the Urban League. And he encouraged the audience to, quote, be more militant. And he capped his speech off by saying, let my people go. Great. And Jones, Jim believed in integration in his personal life, too. He portrayed the temple as a, quote, rainbow family. And along with Agnes, in 1959, the Joneses adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne, and encouraged temple members to adopt orphans from Korea because the Korean War was happening at the time, and there were a lot of orphans.
0: Okay, so now they have four adopted children.
2: They have four adopted children. And... In 1959, also in 1959, Marston gives birth to their only biological child together, who they named Stephen G- Stefan Gandhi.
0: Well, they, didn't they have a kid named Stephanie?
2: Yeah, they sure it's did. F- but, fucking weird. But Stephanie died a few months after them being. They're like, there
0: could only be one. Well, she died
2: in a car accident. Oh, well.
0: well hmm.
2: Stefan Gandhi. And in
0: 1950, Stefani
2: Gandhi. Stefani Gandhi. <laughs> and in 1961, they came, They became, I shit you not, the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child.
0: Are you telling me there was no white saviors in Indiana before 1961?
2: I'm telling you that. I'm telling you <laughs> that, and I'm, I'm not lying to you. And they named him Jim Jones Jr. They also adopted a white son named Timothy Tim, Tim Jones. A.
0: And I
2: know someone named Tim Jones. You Jonesy, do? Jonesy. Yeah. This is this would be Jonesy's like dad. He this is like the <laughs> he would be born in the mid fifties, and his birth mother his birth mother was a member of the temple, and Jim fathered another kid named Jim John with another temple member named Carol Layton. So sandwiches. So sandwiches. So now there's Jim Jim Junior. Tim and Jim John but Jim John's name is nickname is chemo medicine K-I-M-O K- I, th- I think that he was Asian okay why, why do you think that this would be uh, tough to follow
0: <laughs> because I can't fucking follow it dude in
2: 1961 Jim warned his congregation that he received a vision
0: dun dun dun
2: the vision was you a nu- all die. yeah the vision was of a nuclear attack that would devastate Indianapolis. Marceline told her friends that Jim was becoming paranoid and fearful and like other followers of that dude William Branham who moved to South America during the 60s, Jim thought that uh, Br- William had a prophecy th- said that the th- there, the United States would be destroyed in a nuclear war. Okay. Soon after that, in 1962, Jim read an Esquire magazine article that said that South America would be the safest place to be to escape a nuclear war between Russia and the U.S.
0: He read this in Esquire?
2: Apparently so. And so Jim decided to travel to South America to scout for a site to relocate the People's Temple. That was the mission trip to Brazil. So, on the way down there, Jim and company made a short stop in Georgetown, Guiana, to preach. Guiana is a British colony, and so they speak English. So, the Joneses lived in Brazil for a while, working and preaching in a city called Belo Horizonte, which is the sixth biggest city in Brazil, and then in Rio. But the language barrier was a huge problem. They didn't speak any Portuguese.
0: Beige. Ciao. Excuse me? Said, was that Portuguese? Kisses, bye.
2: Oh, are, I thought you were having a stroke. they <laughs> are like, call hospital, beige, Chow. Another problem was Jim's absence in America. Because during his year away, regular attendance of the People's Temple declined from 1,000 to less than 100.
0: Oh, no. Right? <laughs>
2: so Jim demanded that the People's Temple send all of their money like, like the 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 church itself sent all of their revenue to him in South America to support his efforts, and then the church went into debt to support him living there.
0: Normal,
2: super normal. And then in late 1963, someone sent word that the temple was about to collapse and threatened to resign if Jim didn't return. So Jim returned to Indiana reluctantly.
0: The temple of Doom.
2: The temple, the people's temple of Doom, Indiana. Indiana, Jim, and the People's Temple of Doom. Exactly. I love it. That's that's the name of the, the fucking uh, episode. Episode? Indiana, Jim, and the People's Temple of Doom.
0: Exactly. You're welcome.
2: So Jim spends the next few years building the temple back up, and his new grift is telling people that the world is going to end on July 15th, 1967. If only. And thanks to nuclear annihilation... This would lead to a new socialist Eden on Earth.
0: That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and airplanes.
2: Jim Jones is not afraid. He's got a new <laughs> socialist Eden. But the new socialist Eden has to be in Northern California to avoid like the fallout. So the temple must move to Northern California. So Jim and his congregation begin the move to NorCal in 1964. About 140 of the most loyal followers came with him on that first couple of journeys. So in California, Jim took a job as a history and government teacher at an adult education school in Ukiah, California. And he used his position as a teacher to recruit for the People's Temple.
0: This is giving me a V vibes.
2: What do you mean? (laughs) I haven't started a cult. Avenue. you? Our cult internet is not that good. <laughs> so he used his position as a teacher to recruit for the People's Temple and he taught his students the benefits of Marxism and lectured on religion and he convinced 50 of his students to join. 50! And then another 75 folks who had stayed back in Indiana, originally they also moved out. But why? So,
0: if you're in Indiana, what is it like about the... People's temple in California. Now that you're not even near it anymore, there's no internet. He's sending carrier pigeon. The pussy is off the charts.
2: Basically, yeah. <laughs> he's sending word, not via pigeon, but the <laughs> mail exists and telephones. But he's telling people back in Indiana, this shit's great. We're building a new Eden. By the way, uh, you know, we the, the, the world didn't end a nuclear holocaust in 1967, but it's still going to happen, and we're going to, like, you got to come out here and help build this new, new religion. Okay. So by the end of 1969, when Jim convinces Jack Beam to come to the temple and work for the choir, there are about 300 members. Okay. By the early 70s, Jim began calling traditional Christianity a flyaway religion. And he rejected the Bible as a tool to oppress women and non-whites.
0: I mean, I'm not against that at all.
2: See, every time you think <laughs> you know a guy. He referred to traditional Christianity's view of God as a sky God who was no God at all. And instead, Jim, Jim claimed to be God and no God beside him. Enlighten, enlightenment to Jim was socialism, but he was at the top. Okay. And he said King James, as in the King James Bible, was a slave owner and a capitalist who manipulated the scripture to give himself power. True. You really can't pin this guy down. (laughs) It's a real broken clock situation. (laughs) I'll say. So he drew on a prophecy in the book of Revelation and he taught his congregation that American capitalist culture was an irredeemable Babylon. Yep. Yep. Jim added a racial component to his vision of nuclear war, claiming that Nazis and white supremacists would put people of color into concentration camps, and Jones said that he was the messiah sent to save the people from that fate. What? <laughs> What's wrong?
0: Just a little confused. Uh-huh. I guess I guess I'm not confused. He's using his knowledge to manipulate people and twisting truth and giving himself power.
2: Yeah. And like, knows what people want to hear. I definitely want to hear like, capitalism is going to, it has turned America into an irredeemable Babylon. Like, I get it.
0: It's just like he's saying like the whole Nazi thing when it's like.
2: He liked the Nazis. He was, well, he was fascinated by the Nazis. You can't say he liked the Nazis.
0: I mean, sure. You can do a performative. Hail! Yeah,
2: I think I think he was like potentially taking the piss.
0: It's fine. I think he was a master manipulator who studied no. a lot why, of why people. Why you
2: this? <laughs> no, he
0: knew exactly what he was doing, and he did a really good job at it.
2: Members who, this is literally the next paragraph, I'm not, didn't, didn't align this on purpose. Members who rebelled against Jones's control were punished with reduced food rations, harsher work schedules, public ridicule and humiliations, and sometimes physical violence. Hmm. As Temple membership grew, Jim created an armed security group to ensure, older, to ensure order among his followers and to guarantee his own personal safety.
0: Okay. So now he has his own army. Now he's
2: got his bodyguard, bodyguards, (laughs) army cop force. This abuse also, of course, included a ton of sexual violence against the women of his congregation. It is so par for the course in cult leaders that they like the basically the first thing they do is like rape a bunch of rape a bunch of people, force women to have abortions, force women to carry their babies, all this fucking shit. By the by, 1970, the temple had opened branches in several cities, including San Fernando, San Francisco, and L.A. And he eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco because there wasn't a ton of room to expand in Ukiah, and San Francisco was a major center for radical protest movements.
0: It does sort of feel like a lot of the radical culty things have happened on the west coast yeah in like california (laughs) mostly
2: california because because this also is like not too far after charles manson who was like same playbook right like manipulating people and also uh talking about like a nuclear annihilation and a weight and a race war and they're gonna rule everybody this is like not not new sing me a new song jim but by the time to- by 1973 at the time of the release of He is Able the record the people's temple had 2570 members and 30 oh, 30- wow. and 36,000 subscribers to the fundraising newsletter. How? I don't know, man. He is able the, the album sold thousands of copies its first first month of release, and all of that money went to the church. Quote, this is uh, Jack's quote. Thousands of copies were sold at the services along, alongside such other items as pictures of Jim Jones, keychains, and holy oil apparently anointed by Jim Jones. There were very few things that the church didn't sell and that didn't make a shitload of money.
0: Normal. I mean, I'm normal. not being sarcastic.
2: That normal. is normal. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so Here's like,
0: a piece of Hollywood.
2: It's, it's, so it's so interesting to me, like where, I mean, like you can see where he got all this from, right? And it's like, yeah, this is just what the other Christians are doing. He's just doing it more.
0: Yes. I hate to bring Trump into this again, but.
2: Oh God. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to talk about 9-11 later too. Oh
0: great. Uh, I just imagine at the time like a church leader saying like lefty things is basically like Trump is to the fucking rednecks of today.
2: I agree, I agree. Like like just just playing the hits, right? Like mm-hmm. like saying what you know your your followers want to hear. And and the very cynical, maybe not that's maybe not that cynical view of it is that he never believed in racial equality and just knew that he could exploit People of color and minorities.
0: Because I wanted to ask you, but I was like holding it. Um, how many people of color were 70%. part of the congregation?
2: Seventy percent.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that was like psst, uh, I could tell that was coming, but yeah. I didn't know that prior to this.
2: It's definitely pretty episode. skewed, and and I have to believe that some of this like anti-racism thing he came about that honestly and then just like used it to manipulate like used everything about himself to manipulate other people um previously so jim is selling pictures of himself at church services but earlier in his career jim had asked temple members to destroy all photos of him because he didn't want Members worshiping him as Catholic as, as the Catholics worshipped their plaster statues.
0: I mean that also feels performative.
2: Feels performative, but if, even if it isn't performative, it's like uh, he is becoming the thing that he rallied against. Whether he, whether he, it's on purpose or or he just can't see it. Okay. So, according to journalist Tom Reiterman. The temple members were unwittingly and gradually subjected to sophisticated mind control and behavior modification techniques borrowed from post-revolutionary China and North Korea. How? I don't know, which is why I said according to journalist Tom Reiterman.
0: Oh, okay. Tom, give us a call. I have a lot of questions. Not that I don't believe you. I just want to know more.
2: Tom has written a a book called Raven, which is all about Jim Jones, and has written a a ton of articles. Um, So part of it was that the temple tightly defined psychological boundaries that enemies, such as traitors to the temple, crossed at their own peril, while the secrecy and caution Jones demanded in recruiting led to decreased overall membership. They also helped him foster hero worship of himself as the, quote, ultimate socialist. He doesn't care about how many members there are at this point. He cares about how obsessed the members are with him. Sure. He hates being left out. So the temple used like 10 to 15 Greyhound bus type cruisers to transport members up and down California each week for recruitment and fundraising. Jim always rode in bus number seven, which contained armed guards and a special section lined with metal plates, like bulletproof plates. Huge Ricky Manoff fan. Huge, yeah. Seven! He told members that the temple would not bother scheduling any of these trips if they couldn't at least net $100,000. And the temple's goal for annual income from these bus trips was a million dollars. He also had, like, a mailers campaign, so he had, like, 50,000 or so people on his mailing list, and he would send the mailers asking for money, um, and that netted 400 bucks a day.
0: No. That's what he says. That's insane.
2: And Jones worried, quote, they're going to get me for mail fraud one day. <laughs> so with 3,000 members and a continent-wide griff, mailing grift that's happening... <laughs> people on the inside are starting to notice that maybe this isn't what you would call socialism. Hmm. So in 1973, eight young members known as the gang of eight defect from the people's temple together. And because the gang of eight were aware of threats to potential defectors, they suspected that Jim would send search parties looking for them. That was correct. Jim hired multiple search parties, including one that scanned highways from a rented airplane.
0: That's some Scientology shit.
2: This is some fucked up crazy shit, right? So in 1974, the People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guyana. The community was established on a piece of property uh, that was called the People's Temple Agricultural Project, but informally called Jonestown. Jim learned his lesson from his trip to Brazil and picked a country, the only country that spoke English. (laughs) So former Temple member Tim Carter said that the Temple moved to Jonestown because in 74, what we saw in the United States was creeping fascism. It was apparent that corporations or the multinationals were getting much larger in their influence and their influence was growing within the government and the United States is a racist place. And so he said the temple concluded that it was Guyana, a place in a black country where our black members could live in peace and had a socialist government. And it was the only English-speaking country in South America.
0: All right. So
2: in 1976, Jack Beam had enough and bailed. He had enough of the People's Temple. He's gone.
0: How long was Jack in there?
2: He was in there for about seven years. Okay. This is his quote. I saw years of paranoid, tyrannical personality behavior building up in Jim, and I decided I wasn't going to be associated with it anymore. Through the years, I saw what had started out as a great humanitarian effort turn into a living nightmare. But Jim, Jack didn't have a chance to say goodbye to his parents who stayed in the church to the very Ugh.
1: end. Ugh.
2: Quote, I'm sure it upset them. I couldn't stay in touch because when I called the temple, they wouldn't let me speak to them. But on the outside, things are better than ever. First Lady Rosalind Carter became enthralled with Jim Jones when she visited San Francisco with then-vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale during the 1976 campaign. She spoke from Jim's pulpit and also had a private dinner with him at a fancy restaurant in San Francisco, and they continued correspondence by mail after that. They wrote letters to each other. Pen pals. Innocent pen pals. No big deal. And by 1976, Jim openly admitted, even to outsiders, that he was an atheist. The temple feared that the IRS was investigating its religious tax exemption. But despite that, Marceline admitted to the New York Times in 1977 that Jim, taking inspiration from Mao Zedong, was trying to achieve social change by mobilizing people through religion. She said that Jim used religion to try to get some people out of the opiate of religion and that one time he slammed the Bible on the table and yelled, I've got to destroy this paper doll.
0: The paper doll meaning?
2: The Bible? Bible? I God? guess.
1: God?
2: I don't God. So in the summer of 1977, a magazine feature about the temple was published containing allegations from former members about fake healings and financial improprieties and physical abuse.
0: Do you know what magazine
2: New West magazine. Harvey Milk, the first openly gay man to hold elected office in the United States, thought that Jim was getting a bad rep and wrote to President Carter in support of Jim.
0: How does Harvey Milk, Sean Penn,
2: Sean Penn with... Friend of the show. Of... Of Jim. Jim. San Francisco. So Jim is that big.
0: He's just like he's
2: huge in San Francisco. He's working with underprivileged people. He's got soup kitchens. He's he's so big that Rosalind Carter has to visit him and speak from his pulpit to try and whip votes for the 1976 presidential election. Jim is big, but the worm is turning. And so Jim's like, we're all going to Guyana. And so he relocates his whole situation down to Jonestown. Of course, not all 3,000 of his followers want to go. And so, Lindsay, you said 1,000 followers. You are, at this point, right. Moving the whole situation down to Guyana also meant moving the choir and the band too. And after Jack Beam left, Loretta Cordell is put back in charge of the choir and the band.
0: Loretta plays piano
2: loretta plays piano and she's also the bookkeeper for the people's temple and this the people's temple needs a fucking bookkeeper because they are running a ton of scams
0: can we talk about like actual chain letters right now because i remember being a yeah. kid and getting them correct and they're like oh if you send a sticker uh-huh to this person then you're gonna get a ton of stickers
2: yeah, so so there was the the pyramid scheme esque chain letters that were in the mail and that also rear their ugly head in email forwards and also social media. There's like the book exchange one that always I I see every fucking year that pops up and I'm like this is not how that numbers work. But this chain letter scam was different because all it was was uh, like a, a mailer talking about the People's Temple and it had a return envelope and it was like please give whatever send you can send me money yeah
0: sure but i did want to talk about chain letters because i remember reading them and being like oh this makes a ton of sense like i'm going to get a ton of stickers did i no. no and i asked my parents of like oh like why didn't why don't we do chain letters with like a dollar and they said that's illegal and i was like why <laughs> no. is it illegal why is it illegal to send a bunch of dollar bills around
2: okay so the the <laughs> scheme is you get a, an, a a letter with a dollar in it right mm-hmm and then it asks you to do what
0: send a dollar
2: send one dollar
0: so a list who of people
2: who to so multiple dollars right <laughs>
0: yeah
2: so the 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 scam is you're you're in a bunch of money in the hole now because someone paid you one dollar to send ten dollars to ten different people
0: in theory who would pay me back
2: but but they won't and they never and they never planned on it
0: true but i'm just saying why is this illegal
2: so the government doesn't
0: give a fuck if you go to the gambling ring that's true
2: so so pyramid schemes are, are illegal now because and they're now they're just called multi-level marketing they're
0: schemes. called my exactly what i was yeah, about to say
2: so it's, it's still the fucking same thing but that's not they illegal are, they are scams and there was like a big expose on in the 90s like amway remember amway
0: no mary Kay.
2: mary Kay, same same but but the these all these scams work the same where like You have to pay for the product, and then your sales go to the person who like signed you up. So it's very you have to get
0: people to work under you. Yeah, yeah, that shit's still happening. Rodan and Fields.
2: Yeah, there's there's tons of it happening. It's 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 a scam.
0: It's not illegal. But chain letters—that's where we draw the line.
2: I don't. I think your parents may have been lying to you and just trying to <laughs> se- keep you from sending a bunch of dollar bills to people.
0: Like I had any? No, one time I did send a ten-dollar bill away so I could get this, like, how to become an actor book, oh, and yeah. it you came know there in are the bookstores, right? My mom was like, "How did you get that book?" Oh, I put ten dollars in the mail. She was like, "You put ten dollars in the mail." I also got. Sea monkeys.
2: (laughs) My God. No wonder your parents told you it was illegal. You're fucking sending away for all this crazy bullshit (laughs) x-ray specs.
0: (laughs) Anyway, carry on.
2: Anyway, uh, Loretta is put back in charge of the choir. And as this community of like a thousand people is getting set up, Jim is getting more paranoid and... (laughs) The Temple House Band, which was called the Jonestown Express, was, like, left to entertain everybody. So they would perform pop songs by the Beatles and the OJs and the Jackson 5, George Benson, the Stylistics. And in an insane turn of events, there's only one recording of the Jonestown Express that exists. And it's from secret FBI tapes. What? Because the FBI was investigating Jim, sent down like a recon mission in late 1977, and they got the Jonestown Express on tape.
0: Okay, so this is the FBI tapes.
2: This is the FBI So, this song is originally by a guy named Joe Tex.
1: Text? Joe Tex. Texas. That
2: chick was getting down.
1: It's weird
0: that the FBI actually released this.
2: So, the FBI didn't really declassify this until 1999. It's from a tape called Q134.
0: So were they just like playing this in the church basement?
2: I think... It, so there was like a pavilion where people used to hang out and eat and, and and like chat. And so I believe that they played in the pavilion. A lot of stuff happened in the pavilion. Jim used to preach in the pavilion too.
0: The tabernacle.
2: Sure. Just, just a funky 1977 song. So... This is from tape Q one thirty four, which was an FBI tape that was declassified in nineteen ninety nine, and it's of a some sometime in late nineteen seventy seven a performance sometime late nineteen seventy seven. So among the followers that Jim took to Guyana was a kid named John Victor Stowen. John's birth certificate listed Timothy Stowen and Grace Stowen as his parents, but Jim and Grace Stowen had quote a sexual relationship and Jim claimed to be John's biological father
0: who was the quote
2: so I said quote sexual relationship because I don't think that you can just leave it at Grace and Jim had a sexual relationship and not imply that uh, there was like non-consensual sex involved oh I think it's heavily implied that that Jim raped Grace. Okay, and and it might just be me that's implying that, but that that is my. I don't think that a cult leader can basically have consensual sex with a member of the cult.
0: Yeah, definitely an abuse of power. Sure. I was just curious.
2: Yeah, yeah. it's When not... you
0: said, "quote," is it Jim being like, oh, "I had sex with her," or was it like people said that they had sexual no. relations?
2: So, 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 Joe, Jim. This is a fact that Jim and Grace had sexual relations, and the, quote, sexual relationship, I'm, I'm the one that said, quote, because I, I am thinking that Jim raped her, but I don't know for sure. So, Grace left the People's Temple in 1976, and she, in order to do so, she had to leave her son, John, behind. And then Jim ordered the kid to be taken to Guiana in February of 77 to avoid a custody dispute with Grace.
0: So he was stealing it.
2: He, was, he stole this kid, right? Okay. And Timothy, the father on the birth certificate, was in the People's Temple until June of 77. So also went to Guiana and then left Guiana.
0: Maybe not a complete kidnapping.
2: Partial kidnapping. But now, Jones Jim has the kid alone, like with no other parental figure, in Jonestown. And this is the tip of the spear that brings down Jim Jones. Because Timothy and Grace form a, quote, concerned relatives group because their kid is still in Jonestown. And he, the, Jim was not permitting him to be returned to the United States. So the Stones, the Stowans, Timothy and Grace, traveled to D.C. in January of 78 and visited with State Department officials and members of Congress. And they wrote a paper detailing their grievances against Jim and the People's Temple in an attempt to recover their son. Okay. This effort got the attention of a congressman from California named Leo Ryan. So Leo Ryan schedules a visit to Jonestown in November of 1978. He, he gets hot. there. <laughs> That's hot. He sounds hot. I don't think. He... I don't think so, buddy. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry for your burgeoning uh, romance with Leo Ryan, but it's he's got a, just a couple days <laughs> to live.
0: So, the night, yeah, the night, become one.
2: No, no, like, literally live. Like, he's about to be killed, murdered. Yeah,
0: by himself. Well,
2: no, November 17th, 1978. Leo Ryan and several reporters are in Jonestown. They arrive to Jonestown to investigate the claims from the concerned relatives and the Jonestown Express performs for them right it's like this big thing they have that's a nice dinner
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. I like
2: exactly it. <laughs> there's some earth wind and fire happening great and uh the singer of the band Deanna Wilkinson who's the woman on the tape did a quote a stirring rendition of earth wind and fires that's the way of the world
0: I like it mm-hmm. uh-huh
2: uh-huh so okay this is from Ooh. ABC News This is from ABC News. The delegation was fed dinner and several members put on a musical performance under the compound's pavilion. But after the applause died down, one of the journalists traveling with them said that he had slipped been slipped a note by a follower who desperately wanted the congressman's help in getting out. So... Along In this delegation was a woman named Jackie Spire, who was aide to the congressman. Jackie Spire says, I'm looking at this note and I'm thinking, oh my God, it's true. Everything we feared is true. Then all of a sudden, words started getting out and more and more people wanted to leave. So the next morning, when the congressman, when Leo Ryan confronted Jim Jones, Jackie said that it was clear... That Jim was incredibly agitated, and wanting to move quickly, Jackie said that they called in for a second plane at the Guiana airport, and they wanted like a they were, they were gonna fly out immediately and they wanted a second plane to help people escape, right? So Jackie said it was a powder keg of emotions. I mean, it was so clear to me that this thing was about to erupt, and we needed to get those who wanted to leave out there, out of there as fast as possible. Jackie said that as she was leaving the compound with a group of 40 Jonestown members and their relatives, there was suddenly a huge commotion at the pavilion. Out walks Congressman Ryan in a bloody shirt. Basically, someone had tried to put a knife to his neck, but it wasn't success- they were unsuccessful in killing him.
1: Oh...
0: He's just like.
2: So they, yep. So they fear for their lives, and Jackie, as one would. Congressman, yeah, right. Jackie, Congressman Ryan, members of the delegation, and the defectors loaded up and headed for the planes and a nearby airstrip. To right? the Chapa, exactly. And as they were boarding the planes, a tractor trailer with a few men from Jim's security detail drove up to the airstrip and opened fire. Ryan was shot and killed. Just him. So far. Okay. So Jackie says, I saw everyone scurrying and then I saw Congressman Ryan get shot. And I'm running under the the plane as well. And he's going down and I'm getting down. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my God, this is it. I'm going to die.
0: You would think that. I mean, I would.
2: Yeah, right? Anyone would. And then (laughs) Jackie said that she tried to lay down and play dead, but then she realized that she had also been shot.
0: Oh, shit.
2: Quote, my whole leg is blown up. There's a bone coming out of my right arm. There was no reason why I survived, except it wasn't my time.
0: Damn, Jackie.
2: Damn, Jackie. So they were intercepted by the temple security guards. They killed Ryan and three journalists, three journalists and one of the defectors, and they injured. Why'd they kill
0: some journalists?
2: I don't. know. They're just killing everybody, and they injured nine others, including Jackie Spire, who just was hearing her testimony. Yeah, yeah. A few seconds of gunfire from the incident was captured on video by an NBC News cameraman named Bob Brown, who was one of the journalists killed in the attack.
0: Back to you, Bob.
2: Yeah, Jackie was shot five times.
0: Holy
2: shit! But after she su- she eventually obviously survived, and she eventually served in Congress in California for for the same district or parts of the same district that Congressman Ryan served. Her lover? No, she was just his aide. Her lover? Okay, you heard it here first. So that evening in Jonestown, Jim calls a last minute meeting at the Pavilion.
0: He's like, hey, you guys.
2: Hey, hey you guys, we fucked up. <laughs> so some of the people's temple members used the distraction of Congressman Ryan's visit to sneak into the jungle on their own in hopes of escaping to the capital city well, of Georgetown. Oh, the George actual Town. jungle. Into the actual jungle, yeah. And among them was Leslie Wagner Wilson, who was one of the members of the choir who was giving all those quotes about like how hard they worked. And her, three, her three-year-old son, Jakari.
0: Okay.
2: So after walking 30 miles through the dense brush with Jakari strapped to her back, Leslie said that the group meets, reached a small town called Port Kaituma. And it was only then that they learned about the shooting at the airport.
0: So confused. Why did they even fl- flee into the jungle?
2: Because they just wanted out. They went, So they're they, like,
0: this is our chance.
2: Yeah, literally. They're like, okay. the congressman's here. They're not going to notice us leaving. Okay. So they took all their money. The, 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 the People's Temple took all their money, and they gave it to that dude, Tim Carter, who w- made that quote about they went down to 1974 to avoid taxes or whatever. And they told mm-hmm. Tim to go to the Soviet embassy in Guyana... And he was told that Jim thought the Russians could grant them asylum after they killed the congressman.
0: So the church was like, take all our money.
2: Take it to the Soviet embassy. Try to get asylum. Okay. For Jim.
0: With this money. Just try and buy
2: it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Meanwhile, Jim addressed the rest of the crowd at the pavilion, or as you call the tabernacle. So... There are audio tapes that the FBI recovered from Jonestown of this address. And Jim can be heard telling everyone, quote, the congressman is dead. The congressman is dead. Many of our traitors are dead. They're all laying out they dead. Do you think that they're going to allow us to get by with this? There's no way. No way we can survive. It's not worth living like this. Then you can hear on the tape Jim calling for, quote, the vat with the green C to be brought forward, insisting that it was time for their lives to end. And bottles of cyanide were brought out and the poison was mixed with a powdered soft drink called flavorade.
0: Not Gatorade, because that would be bad PR.
2: Not, and Not Kool-Aid either. <laughs> which is what I think you're referencing. So many drank the poisonous mixture of Flavor Aid and cyanide, but other followers injected the cyanide using syringes, and mothers used syringes to squirt the cyanide into their babies' mouths.
0: No, you're, the way that you're saying it is like he was like, "Hey, all y'all, it's time." It's time to die. Yes, yes. Uh, having never mentioned it before. And Correct. they were all like, yes.
2: Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. No. On the tape. He tapes wasn't of- like, well. He
0: had to be like pre, maybe preaching this like slowly, like th- creepily, like infiltrating their brains so that sure there would become a time.
2: I'm sure he was. But there weren't tapes of that because they weren't being investigated.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: You know what I mean? On the tape, supporters can be heard clapping. As Jim instructed families to kill the elderly members first and then the youngest.
0: Kill your parents and then your babies?
2: Yeah, basically. Kill, kill your grandparents and then your babies. So Tim Carter returns to the pavilion after going to the Soviet embassy. And he finds hundreds of people, neighbors, friends, his wife and child dead or dying. God! Engaged in the largest ritual mass murder suicide in history. Tim said, What I saw and heard were people screaming. There were people crying. We use the term drank the Kool Aid to refer to someone who has gone all in on a pretty kooky idea, but that's a misnomer for a few reasons. One, it was very famously not Kool Aid, it was Flavor Aid, a Kool Aid knockoff with its own bizarre mascot. A drinking straw.
0: Wait, is that really where we got drank the Kool-Aid? Yes. No.
2: Because cause everyone said that the people at Jonestown drank the Kool-Aid and then died. But they didn't drink the Kool-Aid. They drank Flavor-Aid. Wow. You want know, to take a look at the Flavor-Aid mascot? This was the cherry Flavor-Aid, but the, it was uh, noted that uh, that Jim used the grape flavor to poison his... Oh,
0: my God.
2: Look at this fucking weirdo drinking straw.
0: Yeah, that thing. No, thank you. (laughs) No,
2: thank you. (laughs) Secondly, drink the Kool-Aid implies that everyone did this willingly, which was very much not the case. Some people were injected with cyanide involuntarily, including hundreds of children and senior citizens.
0: So the hundreds of kids were injected by their parents? Parents.
2: Parents or other followers, other of the older
0: people. Yeah, other I mean,
2: if you can see how this plays out, right? Like a mom might not want to inject her kid, and so someone else is going to do it. But uh, it it's really fucked up. All in all, nine hundred and eighteen people died, including two hundred and seventy six children.
0: Wow, that was a lot of kids.
2: It's a lot of kids, and most of the people on the recording that we heard last week of "Welcome, Welcome, Welcome, All of You."
0: I told you that was a fucking creepy.
2: You were right. And I told you that nothing bad was going to (laughs) happen. We all lie, Lindsay.
0: Oh my God, that was like, welcome to the gates of hell. Ha 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 ha.
2: So Deanna Wilkinson, the woman who was singing the Earth, Wind, and Fire song, died. Loretta Cordell, the organ player bookkeeper died it was the deadliest mass murder in american history until nine eleven. if you don't count hiroshima or nagasaki which for some reason we don't we don't I, we don't count it as mass murder in this deadliest mass mur- hiroshima and nagasaki had killed like hundreds of thousands of people and we're like jonestown was the deadliest. didn't happen yeah this was, was an, an act, act of war of or whatever
0: testing out science
2: yeah right <laughs> at least two farewell notes were left behind at Jonestown, including an unsigned letter that is often attributed to a guy named Richard Tropp who was a teacher at the temple, like he was like he was in charge of teaching the kids, and that letter eloquently described why it was necessary for temple members to commit suicide. And that Jim didn't order the attack on the congressman and his party. The letter concludes, if nobody understands, it matters not. I'm ready to die now. Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on Earth.
0: So no survivors.
2: Oh, no, there were survivors. Tim Carter there was were. a survivor, right? Tim Carter gets back and he's like, what the fuck happened here?
0: Oh, he survived the cult, but f- who was there?
2: Yeah. So, so Tim Carter, before we get to the survivors... Tim Carter disputes that the letter was written by Richard Trapp because he saw Trop and Jim arguing before the massacre. So he doesn't think that he was like a true believer like that. Whatever. So survivors. About 90 people survived by fleeing, hiding. Leslie Wagner Wilson and her three-year-old son used the escaped.
0: I thought they and left before.
2: They did leave before. So so what do you mean by survive? Like, Chaos.
0: It's in my what? brain. Like at, after he's like, "Yo, kill yourselves. Everyone must die." Then did anyone get away?
2: Yes, a few people who were in Jones t- who were at the massacre didn't die. So a uh, Guyanese authorities arrived at Jonestown the following day, and there was only one survivor present at like among the bodies. and her name was Hyacinth, Hyacinth Thrash who was a 76-year-old black woman. She had joined the People's Temple in Indianapolis, and after hearing about the stories of violence at the airstrip, Thrash hid under her bed and then fell asleep and completely missed them. She slept through the massacre.
0: Oh, my God. What if anyone found her, they
2: must have thought that she was already dead.
0: Just had a casual little nappy. Yes. Everyone's dead.
2: So, Jim was found dead on the stage in the center of the pavilion. His head was resting on a pillow near his deck chair, and he had a gunshot wound in his head. Great. Jack Beam, our hero from last week, had defected a couple years earlier, but his parents and younger sister died in the massacre. And Don Beck, the leader of the children's choir, also defected before the move to Jonestown, but his adopted son Danny died in the massacre.
0: Danny and Don are no more.
2: Well, yeah, for different reasons. Dan, Danny, Don was just, like, back in the States, like, fucking fucking around, and Danny died in the massacre. But that's not all. The, Hyacinth Thrash was not the only survivor of the massacre. Jonestown had a basketball team, and on November 18th, 1978, the basketball team had an away game.
0: What? What?
2: So, the basketball team had an away game in Georgetown. So, 11 players and two coaches and a couple other members of the People's Temple were in Georgetown playing basketball at the time of the massacre. Shit. You want to hear their names?
0: Jonesy.
2: Yeah. Stefan Gandhi Jones, Jim Jones Jr., Johnny Cobb Jones, Tim Jones, (laughs) Cleveland Newell, Preston Wade. Carl Barnett, Mark Cordell, Calvin Douglas, Walter Wilson, Walter Williams, Burl Wilson, and the coaches were Lee Ingram and Mike Touchette. So they find out what's happening. Like during the events of Jonestown, the Jones brothers find out the team finds out what's happening, and the Jones brothers drive to the embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown to alert the authorities. So Guianese soldiers keep the Jones brothers under house arrest for five days interrogating them about the deaths in Jonestown. But they keep them in Georgetown so they haven't gone back to the compound yet. The rest of the basketball team was returned to the compound to identify the bodies. Shit. These are like kit, like 20 year olds maximum. Right. So of course there's like a media shitstorm. storm. We get the term drank the Kool-Aid. But Everyone's, everyone's going nose-goes on these guys. The Soviet Union, the, the country of Russia, the Soviet Union, publicly distanced themselves from Jim Jones and what they called a bastardization of the concept of revolutionary suicide. And American Christian leaders... He didn't leaders, do it right, okay? He didn't do it right. And American Christian leaders denounced Jim as satanic and asserted that he and his teachings were no way connected to traditional Christianity so immediately in the aftermath rumors arose that the surviving members of the people's temple in san francisco were organizing hit squads to target critics and enemies of the church why the rumor swirled around like that who knows maybe it was because jim used to chase people with airplanes so jimmy and rosalind carter the president of the united states has to distance himself has to distance himself from ever associating with jim Mm. And Harvey Milk was just about a week away from his assassination. So he had other things to worry about.
0: He got off the hook on that one.
2: Kind of. Yeah. I wonder if I couldn't find any data on this, but I wonder if between the time of Harvey dying and Dan White, his murderer, like confessing to the crime, I wonder if anyone was like Jim Jones hit squad.
0: There probably was some internal investigations. I wonder,
2: because it it was like about a week after the Jonestown massacre. The official autopsy conducted by Guyanese coroner Cyril Mutu in December of 78 confirmed that Jim died of a suicidal gunshot. But his son, Stefan, speculated that Jim may have directed someone else to shoot him. And Laura Johnston Cole, a former t- People's Temple member who was also at the basketball game, said, obviously he didn't have the guts to drink the poison that he made everyone else drink, so he was shot, which I think it was the chicken's way out.
0: So what happens when you drink it? You just like, start foaming at the mouth and I think, seizing? Yeah, and... I, th-
2: I think your organs just like fucking turn inside out. Yuck. The The autopsy, Jim's autopsy also showed high levels of... Uh, the barbiturate pentobarbital in Jones's body, which would have been lethal to anyone who had not developed a a huge tolerance to barbiturates. What? So he had enough barbiturates in his system to kill somebody, but the implication is he was abusing a ton of drugs. So his body was cremated, and his remains were scattered in the Atlantic Ocean.
0: By who? Stefani?
2: I wonder. Stefan and, and Jim Jr., um, so this is from Rolling Stone others had their own personal tragedies after the cataclysmic event in 1978 in 1979 Mike Prokes the temple's media relations coordinator who escaped death in Jonestown called a press conference at a California motel to defend the temple and then he later went into the bathroom and shot himself what
1: the fuck
2: Husband and wife Al and Jeannie Mills, who were prominent defectors and opposed Jones, were found murdered in their Berkeley, California home in 1980, a crime that to this day remains unsolved.
0: Manson murders.
2: No, fucking Jones guys. No, I know. Paula Adams, a former Temple staff member, was murdered along with her child by her ex-lover, Lawrence Mann, a former Guyanese ambassador to the United States, who then killed himself. Dude. And a year later, Tyrone Mitchell, whose parents and siblings died in Jonestown, fired a rifle at a Los Angeles schoolyard, killing one person, injuring more than ten, before fatally shooting himself.
0: Temptrails.
2: I don't fucking know. I wonder. I mean, I wonder if there was. This is also not unique to Jonestown. Some drug experiments with the yeah. people of like
0: Jonestown.
2: What are the poisoning. fucking odds that of the, of the like handful of people that survived the massacre, like four of them shot themselves and two defectors who were opposing Jim, vocal opponents of Jim, were murdered unsolvedly. I don't know, man. Jim's sons went back to the United States, and Jim Jr.'s son kept up the basketball tradition and played on the starting team in college for the San Diego University Toreros. So there's a lot of... In 2008, he was a freshman, so he's a little younger than we are, but... In 2007-2008, there's a ton of like ESPN articles that's like, grandson of cult leader goes D1.
0: Wow. No. oh my god.
2: Yeah, his father, Jim Jones Jr., watched him compete in the 2008 NCAA Tournament f- from the stands, cheering him on. In 2021, Leonardo DiCaprio signed on to produce and star as Jim in a biopic called Jim Jones. And then... It was set up at MGM before moving to Paramount, and it was supposed to come out in June of 2023, but that clearly didn't happen, and there's been no real update on whether the movie is still in the works or not, but this shit happens all the time. You could, you know, could, could pop up again in 10 years, who knows. Jack Beam is still alive and making music as of 2020. Twist, motherfucker!
0: The Shyamalan Twist.
2: So, he wrote a poem 23 days after the Jonestown tragedy on December 5th, 1978.
0: And he... It's been 23 days
2: since you killed yourself. <laughs> since you killed yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Huge twist. He's the founder of the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> so, he unearthed it from uh, some... Pa- in 2020, he unearthed it from some papers that had uh, been hit in a storm. So... A storm hit Florida in 1993 called the no-name storm. I don't know why it's called the no-name storm. That's but not that, a thing. But that storm destroyed the master tapes of He Is Able, the record. And so he- It f- sounds uh, contrived. It certainly does. Jack the
0: no-name storm ruined the tapes.
2: Ruined the tapes. Can, no one can find the tapes. So uh, he unearthed it from some papers that had been in the storm. And he set the poem to music in October of 2020. The song is called Father Knows Best. It's so
0: creepy. Okay.
2: Okay, but I do want... I do want to read the lyrics.
0: Father knows best. Let him be your bright tomorrow. He'll fill your heart with joy and comfort you in sorrow. Father knows best. Trust his gifts of knowledge and truth. Your brotherhood dreams will come true. If you do, father's love will always take care of you.
2: When I heard the news today, I cried. He must have gone insane. Made my family drink the poison and die, begging them not to complain. Ryan's life had been snuffed out, then father killed all his friends. Only liquid purple hell survived that day in a bucket with a cold syringe. Spelled incorrectly.
0: Yes. And then it's the father knows Father best. drugs.
2: Yeah, let's go to drugs.
0: Father's drugged out mind made him rant and rave all day his girlfriend shot him in the jungle sun pulled the trigger he couldn't face a power hungry ego finally brought him down while the murdered congregation laid lifeless on the ground
2: valiant souls were slain that day but the world found out the truth when you put your trust in a tyrant there's no limit to what he'll do told lies about the cruelty till the very end his lacked his last act on earth was a coward's revenge better pray that mankind learned this lesson so it's never taught again
0: something tells me it was
2: yeah right where can people find us on the internet lindsay
0: find us on the internet at lyrics for lunch on instagram and twitter and for longer and weirder stuff shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com
2: and we have a tiktok it's at lyrics.for.lunch and tune in next week. We're approaching episode 100, a big special episode. I don't know what we're going to do for it yet, but we'll do something fun and nice. But tune in next week when we do this all over again, and somehow it will be more depressing than the Jonestown massacre. Perhaps. Perhaps. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein.
0: I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, "Don't drink the Kool-Aid."
2: It was flavoring. <laughs>